0: We are in the book of Acts, basically we're studying what's very often called Paul's first defense. it's not the last, it's the first of three. We are in chapter 22, and we are going to be picking up in verse 22 and reading to the end of the chapter. By this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. And to find out why they were shouting against him like this, when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you, what you, are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who are about to examine him withdrew, who were about to examine him, withdrew from him immediately in the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him uh, before them. And so we continue this morning and what we started last week. Uh, Paul has been arrested. Uh, hasn't really been charged with any particular crime at this point. Uh, but what we're studying right here is what uh, is very often called Paul's first offense. We're going to find two more as we move on through the book of Acts where Paul will be defending his ministry. He is now under Roman guards, standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin. The same court that many years before had condemned Jesus. it also had condemned Deacon Stephen and Paul recalls to mind in his defense who he was and what standing he had in the very body that he is now addressing in regard to Deacon Stephen He was there when Stephen was essentially murdered. And what he says is, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He was stoned to death. Evidently, Paul didn't pick up a stone, but he encouraged a lot of the other people to do that. He aided and approved of those who did. In other words, in essence, by participating as he did, he had given his approval of the of the public murder of this young man Stephen, simply for preaching the gospel. The scripture really doesn't teach as to whether Paul was at the trial and crucifixion of Christ. But it's possible. Very possible. But he is feeling the wrath of the same body aimed at himself now. Uh, a body that he at one time was a very active member and participant in he was as fully committed to pharisaism as those are who now he stands before They lust for Paul's life. They want him dead just as much as they wanted Stephen dead and just as much as they wanted Jesus dead. There's a sense perhaps in which they long for Paul's death even more. For the simple reason he defected. He used to be one of them used to be a friend now they consider him perhaps their very worst enemy the worst sort of an enemy one that they would consider to be a traitor Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It's not unusual for converts to Christianity to lose friends because of their conversion. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but I can tell you right now that there were people that I was very close to before I became a believer that very much distanced themselves from me shortly afterward. Becoming a Christian always is a costly thing. Giving up worldly things. Sometimes things that we love a great deal. Pre-conversion Paul didn't kill people himself. He didn't lift a stone to stone Stephen with. He just encouraged other people to do it. There's a sense in which Paul was a coward. He let other people actually do the deed all the while encouraging it. He had agreed with murdering people just because they didn't share his extreme religious views, and now he finds himself before the very same court on the opposite side. How ironic. How, or what a turn of events. He knows that no matter what it costs him, he must, in fact, defend the gospel. He understands fully that his life is on the line. These people have the power and the authority to take his very life. And they understand, I really believe this is true, they probably hate him more their anger burns more hotly toward him because this is a man is a traitor he's an absolute traitor to their way of life and thinking they want his blood just as much as paul had wanted stephen's should not be allowed to live. The Roman Tribune at this point orders that Paul be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. Now you guys have probably heard descriptions of of what flogging entailed numerous times around the Easter season etc 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 but we're talking about some of the most inhumane physical torture that any person has ever subjected another person to how ridiculous it is (laughs) for anyone to really believe that you can get someone to tell the truth by beating the mess out of them. I don't know about you, but I'd be a lot more inclined to lie under those circumstances than to tell the truth. It, I mean, it's ridiculous. The Romans, this is how they got confession for people. They beat them almost to death. To the point anyone would have admitted to anything. It's Ridiculous. Let me ask you something. Did you you ever, when you were a child, and let me just say, my parents weren't perfect. I haven't been a perfect parent, this, that, and the other. And I would imagine there have been occasions when we've disciplined children when we probably should not have done that. I can remember a few times when I was a little kid, when I got punished for stuff, I just flat didn't do. And I would imagine probably pretty much everybody in this room would say the same or could say the same thing. I can, th- I can remember one thing in particular, that, and it was just a little nothing that as far as I'm concerned, my mother made into a huge deal. And whatever, and she kept telling me that I did this and that and the other, and I kept telling her, No, I didn't, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. And she she spanked me. And only later did my brother come forward and admit that he was the one who actually did it. But isn't it isn't ridiculous to believe that you can get someone to tell you the truth by beating them almost to death. Anyone is going to tell you what they think they have to tell you to get you to stop. But they, pr- they prided themselves in the greatness of their justice system. How many people do you think admitted to doing stuff they actually did not do as a result of being flogged or threatened with flogging? Paul avoids it. Only because he is technically a Roman citizen. He was a member, or he, was, he was from Tarsus, he was born in Tarsus, which automatically made him a Roman citizen by birth just simply because the Romans had declared Tarsus to be a free city. If you were born in Tarsus, then you were automatically a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens were granted special privileges that were not afforded to other people. And one of those is they could not be flogged without first being found guilty of a crime. As a matter of fact, they could not even be bound without first being condemned to some crime. So they have already grossly violated Paul's rights as a Roman citizen. Paul will defend himself publicly at least five times after his arrest before he's actually taken to Rome. One court not satisfied with what the other court did. None of which would actually prove and find him guilty of any crime. He will eventually be sent to Rome so that they can take care of it there. But this determination that they were bound to determine they're going to find that he was guilty of something enough to be done with him. would eventually be sent to Rome, where he would be under house arrest until Emperor Nero would have him beheaded in around 67 to 68 AD, and that's about five years after what's going on in our current texts. court reconvened on the next day and trying to figure out what the real truth is here paul speaks He gives me the opportunity to speak on his own behalf. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. How can he say that? He was a a Pharisee before. He approved of Stephen being executed. That was not St. Paul. He was a different person before his conversion. But there are some things you can say about him that didn't change, and that is whatever Paul did, he did it wholeheartedly. Must have been his nature to do that. No one could count him to be a slackard. As a Pharisee, he had worked hard. As a Christian, he's working doubly hard for a lot of reasons, and one of those is to undo all the damage that he did when he was a Pharisee. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood beside Paul to strike him on the mouth. In other words, to smack him a good one. Just simply because he didn't like what Paul said. This is the high priest, the head honcho. You ever had anyone smack you on the lip? Or slap you on your face? I would imagine it would be infuriating, demeaning, humiliating, a physical way of saying to you, shut your i want you to notice here something paul just didn't take it all he didn't sit there and take all the blows and this that and the other quiet not say anything he did respond god is going to strike you you whitewashed wall whitewash don't hear too much about whitewash anymore it used to be a way of kind of painting things. And basically what they would do is just take lime rock and crush it and then mix it with water and paint it on stuff to give it a whitened surface, to make something appear clean that otherwise would not be. Very often they applied it to burial tombs. Jesus himself had said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and of all uncleanness. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. By the time of Jesus, the Levitical priesthood had become very corrupt. Those to whom, in particular, the Lord had said, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy, were typically everything but holy. Very often they used their position for personal gain. Becoming very wealthy, many of them. They sought prestige and power and wealth. Not the well-being and the welfare of the people. And that's just a general statement. Many of them were also priests of the party of the Sadducees. Some of them served on the Sanhedrin, the city council of Jerusalem. But Paul sees an inroad for dividing the body because he knows some things. And one of those is that the Sadducees believe in the resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisees don't or generally didn't. Some might come to the conclusion that Paul should have just relied simply on God to determine the outcome of a, 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 whatever. That's not what we find with Paul. We find Paul working on his own behalf. After all, Jesus could have defended himself in like manner, and he chose not to do that. He was silent before his court. understand that the Lord is orchestrating all of this toward his own desired outcome unlike Jesus it was no one that really came forward to defend Jesus not to any degree but some of the scribes of the party of the Pharisees actually began to defend Paul, saying, we find nothing wrong in this man. So some people in the court are saying, what are we doing here? This guy hasn't done anything wrong. So dissension between parties in the court began, became so intense that the tribune became afraid for Paul's life. And he abruptly ended the proceedings and had his men take paul to the barracks paul wondering what was to become of him so paul is in jail And the following night, not an angel, not a spirit, but the Lord himself stood by him and spoke to him. And simply said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, that was, that was the whole purpose for all of this, God's purpose for all of this. So you must also testify in Rome. And so you and I have the advantage because we sit on the other side of history. We know that all of this stuff actually took place. The reality is Paul will have about five more years of ministry after what's going on right here. Five to ten years. Some people estimate five, others as much as ten. Because we don't know exactly when some of this stuff took place historically. We do know that he eventually will be beheaded in Rome in around 68 AD at the command of Emperor Nero. The whole time, Paul continues to be active in ministry. The vast majority of the letters that we have, the epistles of Paul in the New Testament, he wrote while he was in prison. He fought the good fight. He fought and ran the good race to the very end of his life. What will be said about us? What can be said about us? Will people say that we ran the good race, that we fought the good fight? We know that the retirement mentality is very pervasive today. You know, we have all kinds of privileges here in the good old U.S. of A. that the vast majority of people in the world still don't. Most people that work in the world still today don't ever get to retire. Now, we believe it's like some God-given right. That most of the people that live in the world today will work to the day they die. And that's been true through the whole history of the world. Don't get me wrong, I'm looking forward to it myself. (laughs) Don't know exactly when it's going to come. but You know, the mentality the average person has out there today is that you work for a time, and then you don't have to do anything anymore. Show me where there's any evidence of that in Scripture at all. Ultimately, it comes down to the, the, this, is, this is a particular benefit and blessing that God has given to us at this particular point in the history of the world. but the general mentality today in the United States is that we work for a time, and we make money, and then when we get to be a particular age, we stop and we don't have to work anymore. We retire. We, now we get to do with our time what we want to do with it. We don't have to answer to other people. We don't have a boss we have to answer to. At least not in a technical sense. Did Paul retire? Did any of these apostles retire? Don't get me wrong. I think it's a good idea. What we're talking about is retiring from our professions by which we earn money to live on. It is a privilege that has been afforded to our generation by God himself. This is a God thing. This is a gift he's given to people like us. And not everybody gets it, but we get it. Most of you probably know exactly where I'm going with this. And what it is is this, is we must not, we cannot let this retirement mentality creep into our Christian faith and the practice of it. Which it will do if we let it. As Christians, we never ever retire from the family business. Because it's our Father's business. Paul never got to retire. Neither do we. Now what does that look like? I don't know what it looks like for you, because let me tell you, your retirement as a Christian is going to look very different than anybody else's around you. But I do know some things, and one of those is this, is your retirement is going to actually require some activity on your part. In other words, doing things like interacting with people now, when we're working, a lot of the interaction that we do takes place through our work environment, right? I, other than Lori, probably when I was working, I was interacting with the people that I work with around me more than anybody else. You know, there are people in, in, in the sphere or circle of our influence. That's our primary audience. Whether it be, pri- whether it be friends or family or other people. Let me just say this, this morning, if Paul could stand before these people that wanted to murder him and testify to the reality of the gospel, can't you and I do it when we don't have any pressure on us at all? Certainly not the threat of death. You don't require retire as a Christian. You don't please don't have the mentality. I've put my time in, now it's my time. Does it back out and let other people do it? There's no scriptural basis for that at all. None. Just like Paul and Jesus we must be about our Father's business always that means encouraging and strengthening each other and loving each other and caring for each other and watching after each other and taking care of each other's needs and all of that stuff but our world does not end in this room It goes way beyond the boundaries of these walls. We have to speak up. When God gives us the opportunity. And let me just tell you, sometimes it's going to require you to actually create an opportunity. There's enough sneakiness in you to be able to do that. And me too. People are going to suspect sometimes that you have an ulterior motive in talking with them. And reality is you do. Let me tell you, there were some people who had, a, had an unbridled passion for key state and Salvation. Who would let nothing get in the way. People stepped forward and they told me about God. They told me about Jesus. They shared the gospel with me. And I didn't react the way they thought I was going to. They pictured that I was just going to blow up and call them an idiot and, you know, this, that, and the other and, and whatever. But let me tell you something. It touched me in a way that nothing else could have because people were willing. They cared enough to step outside of their little world and do their part in bringing me in. God save me. Through the blood of Jesus, he also saved me by the mouths of people. Don't be one of those people who goes to your graves thinking, oh, I have never actually led anybody to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't. You want not have any regrets? <laughs> this world desperately needs to hear and know what we do. It's the only remedy for what's going on out there. This utter absolute chaos. Wouldn't you describe it pretty much like that today? Nothing makes sense anymore. Everything's turned upside down. But there's one thing that stands out in the midst of that, that background, and that is this, is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People need it. People need to hear it. And if we're not willing to feel a little bit uncomfortable to go out on a limb, what does that say about our faith? Really? Really? God's going to give you opportunities. The question is, what are you going to do with those opportunities? Paul sees his trial as an opportunity to teach people and tell people about Jesus. Don't cheat yourself. I'm telling you, there's no greater joy than playing a part in leading someone to Christ. It is wonderful. It is fulfilling. Fulfilling. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. Some of you have played a major role in bringing, Lori played a major role in bringing her unbelieving husband to faith in Jesus. If it was not for her, I wouldn't be here and it wasn't easy for her I know so why did she do it she did it because she loved the mess out of me because she wanted me to have what she had do we have that same passion we don't we should Let me just tell you, there's a lot of people think that that's the pastor's job. The pastor's job is the one supposed to do all this evangelism stuff and whatever. Let me tell you, it's not scriptural. It's the responsibility of everyone who truly knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, period. Not something you're supposed to keep to yourself completely some people seem to think. You need to understand your pastor's not as faithful in doing this as you might think he is either. God gives me opportunities I don't take advantage of. Some of you haven't known me that long but I have never been a very social person. In other words, I've always had close friends and stuff like that, but most people I've kept at arm's length. But as I'm getting older, I'm actually beginning to step outside the box. I actually strike up conversations with people in the checkout line at Walmart that I don't know from Adam. All the time thinking maybe this is going to open no door or a window to find out where this person actually is in regard to their salvation the neat thing is very often the person that you start to share with will tell you, you know what? i agree with you 100% i whatever but Let me say, I I don't know how many people I've shared the gospel with over the years. I've only had one person actually get mad at me and stomp out of the room. Out of what certainly by this time has to be at least a few hundred people. I can't let that one person keep me from reaching out to all these others. Neither can you guys. So anyway... That's all I've got to say other than this to ask you a question. What's your week going to look like?